Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Cornelia Sarabji, one of the greatest lost heroes we should all be celebrating, and whose life, so intertwined with the British Empire, is brilliantly explained by today's guest, Satnam Sangera. Yeah, and it's important to me that Cornelia and Satnam are brought together here. I had never heard of, nor would ever have heard of her, if it had not been for his brilliant book, Empire Land, as he name-checks her alongside people like the nurse Mary Seacole and the actor Ira Aldridge. People who, the clue is in the title of the chapter they're in, we are here because you were there. They are part of our story, they're part of the trapped history story, I can't believe I'm going to be reading out Satnan's words when I've got him sitting in front of me, but there you go. Um, As he himself writes, Britain is a multicultural, racially diverse society because it once had a multicultural, racially diverse empire. And that plays out, I think, in everything that we know about Cornelia, actually. So her surname is Sarabji, but her first name, in fact, literally her Christian name is Cornelia. And that comes about because her mother, born in the 1830s into a poor family in southern India, converts from Hinduism, lives with Christian missionaries and is taken in, looked after, adopted by the family of a British aristocrat, Sir Francis Ford. And just to complicate matters further, or perhaps to illustrate the interconnectedness of everything we talk about when we talk about the British Empire, that family had its roots in the Council of Barbados, the body which oversaw slavery on the island. Anyway, Cornelia's mother is christened Francina and she is a powerhouse of a mother. She sets up the Victoria High School for girls in Pune, another school for Hindu children, and another one for Muslim children. She has 10 children of her own, including Cornelia, and they're a pretty successful bunch, aren't they, Oswin? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could do a whole series on the women of the Sarabji family. Susie spends her life campaigning for girls' education in India. Alice is the first woman to get a science degree in India. She then goes on to become a doctor. She writes novels. She gets an OBE, showered with awards. I mean, we have chosen... Cornelia, because I think she crystallises everything we are going to be talking about today. I mean, there's her her amazingness, for Mm -hmm. starters. But there's also the complexities, the compromises, the, the fog and the mess which her life throws into relief. This is an Indian woman who in the 1880s and the 1890s flings herself against educational barriers again and again. An Indian woman who reaches the top of a profession which women or Indians are barred from at the time. I mean, does that remind you of anyone, Carla? It does, actually, Oswin. Um, Emmy Nurter, who we featured in Series 1. And if you haven't heard this episode, I strongly recommend having a listen. She was an amazing woman and she smashed down so many barriers to learn maths and to teach maths. Yeah, and and it's happening at exactly the same time in Germany. And I, I was sort of under the impression that Oh, well, that's the Germans for you. But actually, it was also, well, that's the British for you too. And yet, despite that, Cornelia, I have to call her Cornelia Sarabji. Those two names are very important and very significant. Cornelia Sarabji actively supports British rule in India. She condemns Gandhi. She opposes Indian independence. And it is about struggling to reconcile the Cornelia the British, with the Sarabji, with the Indian. And that seems to define everything that Cornelia stands for. 
And I think that's probably a good point to bring you in, Satnam. <laughs> yes. mm. How do you think that duality kind of plays out more generally in British Indian culture today? I think it plays out throughout history and throughout families and throughout anything involving people. People are complicated. I mean, you mentioned Gandhi there. He was complicated. I mean, he famously probably was one of the people who did most to bring down British empire. But he talked up elements of empire. You know, he said he believed in the empire's legal system, its law and belief in the rule of law. Also, famously, he participated in anti-black racism when he worked in South Africa. So he's a complicated person, isn't he? But I think our public culture, our journalism can't handle this complexity, mm, the fact mm. that people can be contradictions. Mm. Mm. But it's true, I think, almost of anyone. I think whatever you say about anyone, even the people in this room, you can say the opposite is true to, to a certain degree. <laughs> I mean, I'm a massive introvert, but then I love throwing dinner parties. You know, what's that about? <laughs> and I bet you, you're, you're a bunch of contradictions too. So we call trapped history because of something that James Baldwin said, which is that people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. And it's about us being stuck in these big histories. That's us being trapped in the history. But also the histories are trapped within us. The introvert extrovert is trapped within us as well. The idea of being Cornelia and Sarabji, the idea of being British and Indian, is that something which you see played out in in British, Indian and Pakistani and Sri Lankan and uh, Bangladeshi life here today? I think, um, you know, there's a whole raft of literature where, you know, where the children of immigrants talk about being caught between two cultures, mm. which I, I guess I contributed to with my memoir. But in the case of mixed race people or people who are Christian and Indian, I don't think those elements are nef necessary that neat. It's not necessary. It's because she's Christian that she has those pro-empire views, you know, because as we know, you know, you can be a brown cabinet minister and be massively <laughs> pro-empire now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And although that's really challenging for lots of us, I think you've got to applaud the fact that people can be complicated now. Yeah. And, um, you know, even though they, they have views, people like Suella Braverman, have views I disagree with, it's entirely allowed. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's said that, oh no, she's a traitor to her race. And I think that's a form of racism in itself. Okay, we're making you work for that glass of water there. Yeah, I've defended <laughs> Suala Braverman, my God. <laughs> um, um, uh, so sort of back to Cornelia, can we just hear a bit more about her, Carla? Yeah, absolutely. So she's born in 1866. And given her mother and family, it's not really surprising that education features very strongly and also service. In her memoirs, she recalls at the age of eight, the visit of an Indian widow to her home. By the way, a dumney is a type of wagon. She was a Gujarati Hindu who came in a dumney, which was all tied up in embroidered covers and drawn by two little white bulls wearing belts and blue bead necklaces and embroidered saddlecloths. She had owned, as a widow, a considerable estate in Kathiawar. As she was secluded and could not manage her property, she left everything in the hands of her man of business. She was able to transact business with him freely, without breach of custom. Her part was to give verbal instructions and to sign blank papers to enable him to carry out these instructions. She could not write, but was taught to make the hieroglyphic which represented her name. All monies and the disbursement of monies were in his hands. She had just discovered 
30 years after the house had been occupied that she was penniless the man of business had filled in over her signature a deed of gift to himself of all her property Cornelia vows then and there to find a way to help women like this women in perda the perda machine women who can communicate with the outside world only in exceptional circumstances essentially widows who are completely enclosed from society and so she sets her sights on the law Cornelia is the first woman to attend Deccan College in Pune she graduates with top honors and is awarded a first class degree from Mumbai University in 1888 she's the first woman just to be clear to do this one indian newspaper reported it as follows women all over the world are bestirring themselves to assert their sometimes questionable but in many cases perfectly justifiable claim to a status in culture art politics etc equal to that of men their fitness and right of doing so cannot be doubted any longer now normally the person in her shoes would be sent to an english university on a scholarship but normally that person would have been a man and so cornelia has to content herself with a teaching job at gujarat college Now I say content herself but Cornelia doesn't take this rejection lying down she fights for her right lobbies hard for it and she wins she's effectively sponsored by some pretty well-known victorians one of the founders of the indian national congress the wife of a member of the house of lords oh and one florence nightingale there are questions in parliament and a campaign in the queen magazine to raise a 300 pound required to pay for the new scholarship she gets her scholarship She takes up her place at Oxford where she becomes the first woman. Again, another first and it isn't just the first Indian woman, the first woman to take and pass a law degree. She even has to fight to be able to take her exams and sit her exams in the same room as the other male candidates. But although she gets her degree, she isn't given it. It's only after the First World War which changed so many things. It was only after that that the university finally agrees to grant degrees to women. So she's got her legal training. She goes back to India where again she's not fully recognized. She is still allowed to plead in court. And so in 1896, it's another first, the first woman in the British Empire to plead before a judge in a murder trial. Mr. Rabchi put her case in a logical, though perhaps not very forceful way. This being, we understand, her first appearance in a Pune law court, the probability was that the lady was a little nervous. and for this reason perhaps the forensic force of her address was not so pronounced as was the logic of her deductions but throughout she argued the point with a calmness and consistency that would have done credit to a veteran pleader of the sterner sex she wins and her client is acquitted but then the shutters come down once more and she's barred from court appearances despite taking legal exams in mumbai and so what does she do she plays the british at their own game and lobbies to become a lady assistant to the court of wards it's a kind of liaison officer role and it reunites her with her early passion for women's rights okay she might not be able to represent people in court but she can still practice law from 1904 onwards cornelia will spend the best part of 20 years providing legal advice and support to perda nasheen so they can keep hold of what is theirs even more powerfully cornelia helps some of these women train as nurses so they can move beyond perda to some degree and engage with the world on their terms in one year alone she gives legal assistance to 110 estates helping over 400 women and children and traveling more than 20,000 miles while doing so at the same time she's working with the national council for women 
the Federation of University Women, a whole range of civil society organisations designed to promote and protect women's rights. So really sort of in, in any other story, this is all amazing and this is all wonderful. And it's someone who is, it's a woman who is pushing against the confines that society, wherever that society is, is uh, imposing on her. And yet, and this, I suppose, is where, for me, the problems come in, and, and we'll be asking Satnan about this in a moment. I mean, Cornelia, she has soaked up British, Victorian, imperialist ideas, not only at home, but also in her formative years in England, at Oxford. She met Gladstone, Tennyson, Balfour, George Bernard Shaw, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, Florence Nightingale, of course. And she had a certain celebrity of her own. She was the special British Indian woman of late Victorian England. Lord Curzon, who would become the Viceroy of India in 1899, he said that he could not understand how anyone educated at Oxford could fail to be an imperialist. And that is the world where Cornelia found herself. And, you know, when all said and done... I don't think it's a surprise. Later in life, Cornelia takes up the imperialist banner. She opposes Indian nationalism and self-determination. At one point, I think in the 30s, she's interviewing Gandhi for the Atlantic magazine. And the interview has to be cut off halfway through because she's just being so rude and obnoxious to him. Um, she says of him, His truths were built upon deceptions, his loyalties upon verbiage. So what does she do? She proclaims herself an, an empire citizen. She tours India. She tours America in the cause of the British Empire. There was a book called Mother India, which was very controversial. Uh, and she openly supported this book. Th this book was written by an American author, Catherine Mayo. It was a full-fronted, full-throttle attack on Hinduism, on Indian nationalism, the independence movement. The book was burnt in India. The author was burnt in effigy. But Cornelia was supporting this. Another writer, Vera Britton, said that Cornelia had taken, and I quote, the wrong direction at an important moment in history. Which I think takes us to our guest today. Um, uh, you've heard him already, but we're delighted and honoured to be joined by Satnan Sanghera, writer, prize-winning writer, Journalist, author of what I think is one of the most important history books of the last decade, The Quite Brilliant Empire Land. Satnan, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, thanks for having me on. You know, that story reminds me of so many people. Actually, her pro-empire views were routine. I mean, the founders of Save the Children, female founders, hugely into empire. They saw the empire as being fundamentally humanitarian and saw charity work as an extension of that. And... I'm writing about this in a book I'm working on now. A lot of the founders of, or the people involved in British charities up until the 50s and 60s were former imperialists. And you've got to remember that it was generally thought in that time that empire was good. You know, yeah. And if you think that's the case, you're not going to be against it, are you? But it's hard for us to understand now. In some ways, I suppose it's, it's the same urge. It's the feeling of we know better and we will do something to make your life better. Totally, yeah. And so they would go to Africa and say, this is how you feed your children. And this is how you clothe them. That, that kind of attitude only began to be taken on, really, I think, in the 60s. Yeah. Are they, arguably, I mean, 
some charities now still have quite imperialistic attitudes. I mean, the whole thing, idea of the white savior and the comic relief being accused of sending yeah, of white course, celebrities to Africa, that all comes from this, you know? And I think this is the way in which I argue that, you know, empire explains so much about what British people do now, let alone then. So it's still with us. Totally. No escape. <laughs> and actually so many, I was reading yesterday that so many of our world leaders, even now, uh, were educated through the British education system, went to Oxford and or, or British public schools, and a shocking majority of world leaders. So obviously they're going to have certain ideas about the world. And some of those ideas might be imperialistic. And it's a, a particularly difficult thing to get your head around is the fact that some of the leaders of the post-colonial countries like India were also educated in, at Oxbridge. And even in their independence, even in fighting for independence, they were being paradoxically quite imperialistic. And, you know, these post-colonial states, they were created by empire. So, you know, you could argue, yes, all these countries got independence, but they were independence as imagined by imperialists. So you just can't escape it, whatever you yeah. do. There's an episode we're going to be doing in a, a couple of weeks where we're tangentially come up um, Kwame Nkrumah and Jomo Kenyatta who were in London and were imbibing everything that London and Britain was was telling them about life in the 30s and 40s. They became hugely important pan-Africanist um, independence leaders, but everyone's supping at the same well. Yeah, and actually the current uh, Prime Minister of India, Modi, who's very problematic as a Hindu nationalist, nationalist but he argues that colonialism continued in independence because people like Indira Gandhi and Nehru were British educated. And he argues that it's only him and his party who are truly bringing kind of independence to India now. Okay. Okay. Mm. It's an argument. It's an argument. <laughs> <laughs> You're here to talk about a book. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Two books, in fact. So we'll talk about Empire Land in a moment and what the stories of people like Cornelia tell us about the empire. But Satnam, you've also just written a children's book, Stolen History, which is brilliant. Um, I've read it and I'll be encouraging my three children to, to read it as well. It's really accessible, a really enjoyable read, really fascinating read. Um, can you tell us and our listeners why you think such a book is necessary? I think uh, every four or five years, uh, Britain has a massive crisis often about racism. It happened after the murder of Stephen Lawrence, happened after the Windrush Inquiry, and both of those inquiries for those two crises concluded in part that we need to teach empire better. And yet somehow we never do. You know, we just keep on, we've had politicians like Michael Gove, people like me arguing, Jeremy Paxman arguing that we need to teach empire better. And for some reason we just never get around to it. And one of the main reasons we need to teach it is because it explains our multicultural country. As you quoted earlier on, we are a multicultural country because we had a multicultural empire. But the problem is, I grew up with a narrative, and I think most people have in this country, that brown people came here uninvited and took advantage of British hospitality. That's the dominant narrative about immigration in the media still today. I absorbed that. I didn't realize until my 40s when I started writing Empire Land that the people on the Windrush came as British citizens, you know, under the 1948 Nationality Act. And the, the fact that in the Windrush inquiry, uh, scandal, we've had black people, people who are British citizens, return to a country they don't know, conveys just how much of a problem it is. Civil servants do not understand the basics of this history, which is why we've got to educate children 
on the basics as young as possible. So that's why I wrote it. It's the biggest thing this country ever did, really. Right? It's the biggest empire in human history. And yet it's only a small part of the national curriculum at the moment. So mm. again, I think it needs to have more emphasis. So if you were education secretary, how would you do things differently? Because presumably the British Empire would be taught very differently 100 years ago to how it would be taught as part of the national curriculum now. Yeah, well, the first thing I'd do, I'd make it a central part of the curriculum in that, in the way that World War I and World War II is and mm. the Tudors are. Yeah. It's got to be up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And not only that, I would say the, the history of World War I and World War II and the Tudors has an imperial element that we don't talk about. So I studied history to GCSE. I didn't realise that there were tens of millions of Asians and black people who fought in both world wars. Biggest army in the world. Didn't know. I mean, I sat through a dozen uh, Remembrance Day services at school. No one said to us, oh, by the way, your people were there too. It would have been an interesting point to make to a racially diverse student yeah. base, but it was never made. So you said in, in your book, In Stolen History, that we don't necessarily have to decide if the British Empire was good or bad. Yeah, this is a idea that actually I didn't understand either until I was in my 40s that history is argument based on fact of course yes. and I left school thinking history was just a list of undisputed facts and I think that's the popular view of history and it's not it's arguments isn't yes. it and we have various arguments about empire and I think kids can't miss the fact that when empire is raised people get very cross and I think we can introduce them to the idea that people have different views at quite a young age. And you can argue different things as long as it's based on hard historical fact. That's an important caveat, because I do think we have the rise of fake history in Britain, yeah. where people just want to argue whatever they want, and, you know, to reflect their politics. But actually, it needs to be based on rigorous historical fact. I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the point of, of trapped history, which is to recognise that that you have the past, which is stuff that happened. I can't go back and change my past as much as I would like. But then you have history, which is how we today in the present make sense of the past. And so history is constantly rewritten. That's the whole point of history. It's meant to be rewritten. Mm. But you must be getting people coming to you all the time saying, oh, you're rewriting history. Oh, you're just, you're just trying to change what happened. Yeah, and I think one of the ways of taking the tension out of it, especially for kids, is by talking about the daily things in your life that can be explained by empire, which aren't particularly political, you know, like sugar. You know, kids love sugar. The sugar was produced in huge quantities on plantations as a result of slavery. That's just facts, right? Nutmeg is something I guess kids probably don't recognize, but if they've had a, a gingerbread man, they might have tasted it, right? Yeah. You know, nutmeg is a spice that drove the, the beginnings of empire. The search for spices was so desperate that, you know, we went to war with the Dutch over this island producing nutmeg. So I think you can begin to understand the basics of empire by just looking around you and uh, explain so much. And actually, I was looking into how empire was taught in the past during the empire. And that was one of the ways it was taught in that they used to have lessons. They used to have object lessons where kids would or teachers would bring in objects which came from empire so cocoa or sugar or a bunch of things and sometimes kids would dress up as commodities from empire like dress up a, as commodities yeah like <laughs> they would come into school as a banana it's like a bit like world book day meets waitrose um, 
But that, that, the way they taught it then is useful for us now. So, back to Cornelia yeah. Oswin. What, what happens to her? 1922, uh, after Oxford has finally recognised women's degrees, Cornelia goes to Britain to collect hers. In the intervening 30 years, it's been upgraded from a third to a first, so there is some sort of benefit in waiting. And she is now able to formally practice as a barrister. She's admitted to Lincoln's Inn. She's called to the bar at the age of 55, late in life. But apparently, and it felt to her that the doors were being flung open at last. However, back in Kolkata, despite having jumped through every hoop, still no one wants to be represented by a woman in court. So it's back to the backroom for Cornelia for the next uh, seven years. And she eventually, she retires from law, she moves to London, and that's the point when she takes up this other career of becoming a tub-thumping imperialist, uh, as we've heard. And yet she does live to see an independent India. She's not recorded as having any view about that. And she dies in 1954, actually just down the road, down the road from here where we're recording this episode of Trapped History. So one thing I wanted to get to get back to sort of in terms of, of Cornelia is, I mean, you write in, in Empire Land and, you know, no word of a lie. When Empire Land came out, just started up the Trapped History Instagram account. And this almost gave me a route map for what we could do and how, how important it is to to focus on the things that people don't like to look at, but actually tell us so much about ourselves today. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for your account. I am a follower. <laughs> and, and in Empire Land, one of the things you talk about is, is an empire state of mind. Hmm. And it strikes me that Cornelia had that empire state of mind live at the time. I mean, you talk about it in the sense of the nostalgia that people have it now and they're sort of harking back. I mean, the nicest way I could describe it is counterintuitive for her as a Parsi Indian woman to be so wedded to empire that she couldn't see her own country underneath that. Am I being too harsh on her? A bit. I feel like she was a symptom of her times. You're looking using our enlightened times to look back and slightly judge her. And I think I, I feel a bit more compassionate towards her. And also you've got to remember there's brown people around now with almost the same views. Kemi Bedenock. The conservative minister was talking recently about how much she thought empire was great. And I couldn't really explain it, but I went to Nigeria recently and I went to a school there. And the education there is still really British, but also British in the 1960s sense in that they're teaching stuff that we've kind of decolonized out of Britain. And you'll see there's imperial attitudes all around the world. You know, there's a definite view amongst once colonized people, that empire is great. It's a minor view, but it exists. I can't say I, I counted it at all when traveling in India recently, though, because, uh, you know, India's actively trying to decolonize itself. It's renaming buildings and streets. It's getting rid of the English language and its national uh, monuments and in its songs and so on. And it's it very much sees itself as a superpower. It doesn't want to talk about empire. What do you take from Cornelia's life? Um, Satnam, what would you take from a life like that? I'm left with a lot of questions. I mean, I want to know 
how she felt about the racism of British Empire. I'm not sure how she kind of uh, dealt with that. The yeah. the racial discrimination of the imperialism that she preached and where people were suffering in the way she suffered because of their colour. I don't know. I would love to know if she spoke about that. So I'm left with more questions than anything else. She, Yeah, I mean, she, she wrote uh, a couple of autobiographies, but they don't touch on this fundamental foundational issue as far as I've read. They are uh, autobiographies where she does, it does feel that she, it's, it's unfair to use this word, but it feels that she was sort of taken in hmm. by, by the glitz of what empire was and by the Gladstones and the Tennysons and, and the Florence Nightingales, that the empire was for her important, good people doing good. Yeah, and there were lots of people like her. And if you go into Regent's Park, uh, there's a water fountain there that was built by <laughs> an Indian who was very grateful for the British Empire, a Parsi gentleman. And there were lots of them. I mean, some people did really well. Some Indians did really well out of empire. And we've got to remember that. We've also got to remember that some, that some white British people fought empire. And that's a proud imperial tradition too. It was an incredibly complicated process. It wasn't one thing, which is what the culture warriors want you to think. Satnam, we ask all of our guests to nominate somebody for the Trapped History Hall of Fame, someone we should have heard of but haven't. So who would you like to nominate today? It's going to have to be my old pal, Dean Mohammed, who actually was the reason why I started writing Empire Land. Because I, I thought I would write a novel based on this guy's life. And I, he came... He was from India. He came over with the East India Company official officer, I guess, to Ireland and was the first Indian who really became famous in Britain. I don't know if he was literally the first Indian, but he was the first Indian to write an English book. He was the first person to open a curry house in Britain. He Fantastic. opened a kind of massage parlor in Brighton. Mm -hmm. First person to do that. And became so famous that he, uh, he the king was one of his customers. <laughs> Which um, king? When, when is this? Oh, my God, you're a testing man. This is during the time that Brighton was really famous. The guy who was building the pavilion and all that stuff, oh, Prince Regent. George IV. Yeah. I mean, he, he was around in Britain in the early 1800s. Um, he wasn't a particularly good writer. I mean, his, his book in English is terrible. <laughs> also, he's, uh, he was a terrible massage therapist. He actually, his massage parlor broke someone's arm. So I question his, his methods. But he was the first. Also, he had an like, interracial relationship. He got married to an Irish, Irish woman. Like, oh, really? Centuries before I was worrying about that stuff and writing about it, you know. And he was quite famous in his lifetime. And like a lot of these figures that you talk about on your show, they're kind of forgotten about yeah. after they after they die, mm. and um, yeah, we need to bring these people back. And Dean, Dean should be remembered. What a wonderful person to have back! So the first mm. curry house, the, the, the a slightly dangerous massage parlor. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think the curry he served, you wouldn't recognise it because <laughs> I guess he didn't have the ingredients, did he? Yeah. God, yeah. Yeah, and he was catering, I think, for a crowd who of English people who worked in India and missed curry and. God knows what he served up. I suppose it's interesting <laughs> being in Brighton because the Brighton Pavilion has, got, you know, it is sort of trying to have some sort mm. of romantic 
uh, view of the Orient. Yeah, uh, being, uh, you know, Indian, I guess, was quite fashionable. Yeah. And all things Oriental, Chinese and Indian. Uh, those people at that time kind of put them all together. Also, I, he gave himself the title of, some, you say it's sake, but I guess it's shake. A completely made up title. And it's interesting how when he first came to Britain, he did everything he could to be the Englishman, wrote yeah. a book in English. Yes. And then suddenly he obviously realized that it was more lucrative to be seen as Indian and gave himself this title and became more Indian than any Indian in the history of India. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, yeah, good businessman. Mm. That yeah, like. yeah. And the first, I guess the first British Asian entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fine tradition. Brilliant. We will definitely have him in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I love him. Have you, have you read his book? I have. I, he wrote several books and they're absolutely terrible because <laughs> you could also set yourself up as a doctor in those days without any qualifications, which is what he pretty much did because he became a shampooing surgeon, which is what I guess we'd see as a massage therapist now. Shampoo then meant kind of massaging. Okay. You can see how it then, went, then it became a reference to the way in which you, you massage your hair to clean it and then it became shampoo. Mm, but he okay. was shampooing surgeon. And presumably shampoo is an Indian word. It is, yeah. Um, so he wrote bo lots of incomprehensible books about the benefits of shampooing <laughs> as a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> it's all quite bizarre. Yeah, that's wow. brilliant. Okay, that's the next one on the reading list. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So what's on next, Carla? Well, when you think of World War II's French resistance, you probably picture men. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to show you the women of the resistance, in particular André de Jong, who led one of the greatest escape routes out of France, the Comet Line. Brilliant. Really looking forward to it. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been MK Lee. Our music is by Pavlo Buterin, and you've also heard the voices of Anushka Raff and Tim Redman. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please give us a rating. It really helps. And visit trappedhistory.com where you can hear bonus episodes and send us your own Hall of Fame nominations. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Great. Thank you. And also thanks for having me on, man, and for what you do. Thank it's you great. Very much. No, really thank you for coming. Yeah. It's also you've yeah. stopped me having to do a podcast because someone was like, my agent was like, you should do a podcast on forgotten people. I was like, that already exists. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need, I don't need, I don't need to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>